Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Delivering the steel of tomorrow today in association with ArcelorMittal. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so welcome to um, the, the breakfast briefing from, uh, from ArcelorMittal, um, where we're going to talk about um, <coughs> our decarbonisation plans and how we're, how we're rolling out um, those plans. There's three of us on the stand today. So my name's Walter, Walter Swan. I'm kind of uh, an ArcelorMittal employee in the UK. Come from a construction background, so hopefully speak your language. Um, we've also got Dave Chapman, who is one of my colleagues in the UK too. And at the back in the blue jacket, uh, we have Marion Charlier, um, who comes from our Luxembourg facilities. You are all welcome to come forward if you want to, because uh, it looks like it's going to be quite intimate. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll crack on and see, uh, see how we go. So I'm going to jump straight into the deep end and just give you the product offer. This, this is what we've developed over the last kind of um, 20, 24 months. Um, and basically what we've got is we've got an electric arc furnace offer, um, which is plugged into renewables. And it covers all of the product groups that you would use in construction. So we've got something for sections, which you make your frames from. We've got something for hot roll coils. Hot roll coils can be used for plate applications, but the product that we roll is only up to about 12 millimeters thick, so it has limited application. But that hot roll coil also provide, acts as a feedstock for um, metallic coated coil, which is what is used for your decking and your light gauge applications. And then we have, um, it, it also acts as a feedstock for organic coated coils, which is kind of for your the wrap that you put around the building. But they're all pretty much the lowest carbon offering that we can make you today using today's technologies. Um, and just to finish that off, we've also got an offering in terms of sheet piles and also rebar as well. In terms of sections, um, that was one of the first ones that kind of came to market. So there's a stock of those sections starting to build up in the UK supply. So it's no longer just a, a mill order product. Um, you're starting to get something which you can get from a stockholder in a matter of, uh, of a couple of days. And the same applies to rebars. We're starting to, to land rebars in the UK down at uh, Chatham Docks uh, in London. And that's starting to find its way into, uh, into projects in the UK. Um, but what is X-Carb? What is X-Carb recycled and renewably produced? Um, so X-Carb covers all of our products. It's, a, it's an offering which is starting to roll out. It will change, it will develop, it will evolve. But at the head of the offering is basically an investment fund. And into that investment fund, which has now been operational for two years, we inject $100 million worth of cash. And the idea is that will uh, be used to stimulate startups, stimulate people with business ideas, um, to um, help us to transition more quickly because we want to go faster if we can, and we want to be able to um, stimulate those technologies that will allow us to do that. So if you look at the, um, at the screen, what you'll see is um, an idea of the sort of things that we're interested in. So you have this thing called Form Energy. Um, sometimes there's some interesting links with steel on these, by the way. So Form Energy is, is basically a startup business, which has taken a, a 19th century technology called an iron air source uh, battery. And it basically runs the corrosion process, which is an electrochemical reaction backwards and forwards, and basically can store energy longer than, um, than a lithium iron battery uh, can. Why are we interested in that? Because if we're gonna rely on renewables, we need to basically balance the grid. We need th technologies like that. Um, we've also invested in a company called Lanzatech. Lanzatech have helped us to develop a um, a process which you can bolt onto a blast furnace, which allows you to um, make a third product from a blast furnace. So from a blast furnace, you get iron. From a blast furnace, you get slag, which you can turn into GGBS. Now we can get bioethanol, and that can be used as a fuel, or it can be used as a building block to make plastics. And then one which isn't mentioned on there is um, a company called Boston Metals. These are a, an American-based startup. And what they're doing is trying to develop a technology where you make iron directly from the iron ore um, in an electrolysis process. So you've got a bath of iron ore in an electric light, anode, cathode, oxygen at one end, iron at the other. 
<coughs> we think that's about 10 years off. But because our, our journey is going to take longer than that, it's, it's worth making that investment. Um, in terms of the product offer, the product offer falls into two categories. On the left-hand side of your screen, and you've seen the EPDs for these, um, you've got the XCARB recycled and renewably produced. So the clue is in the title. Recycled means it comes from 100% or a high percentage scrap. Renewably produced means that we basically plug everything that is possible into renewables and then we create the paper trail to the source of the renewable electricity that's produced, creating that, uh, creating that link. The recycled renewably produced sits nicely within the uh, project accounting protocols, 15978 is the, uh, is the standard for that. Um, so that's quite nice. Env environmental consultants, engineering consultants generally quite like that. The other offer is XCARB Green Steel Certificates. This is the more challenging one because we can do things now to our blast furnaces, but they're really modest in scale, but you can still capitalize on those and um, companies can reduce their scope three emissions by, uh, by using um, those uh, products. So we'll try and show you how all of those work. Um, we're starting to have a little bit of success in the marketplace. So three recent projects um, in the UK uh, one on the, left, um, on the uh, top left there is Worship Square, which is kind of under construction uh, in London. Um, we worked with uh, the uh, developer client on that one, um, and they used a number of our uh, products. One of them was the XCAR, but we also looked at High Star 460 columns to reduce the amount of material that you use in the building. Uh, there's a distribution center there, which was done uh, with um, a, um, a, a client of ours uh, who buys steel from us. Uh, Barrett Steels, so that's a, a distribution centre, and then there's some transfer trusses that you see down there at uh, Canada Wharf. Um, but they've been successfully implemented in the UK in the last 12 months. And this, there's, there's more in the pipeline as well that we're starting to see. Um, just as a little bit of a recap, and I apologise if you already know this, um, there are three ways that steel is made, three principal ways that steel is made um, around the world. So on the left-hand side, you have the blast furnace, which operates in conjunction usually with a basic oxygen furnace. That accounts for 70% of global steel manufacture, and you use the primary materials. You use iron, iron ore. You start with iron ore. If you look at products from the blast furnace, they'll have a, an impact, an environmental impact, um, of around about 2.5 tonnes of CO2 per tonne of steel produced. And if we now move on to the second one, the middle of the, uh, the, the slide there, you've got this thing called DRI AAF. DRI, direct produced iron. Sorry, I'll jump back one. Blast furnace, operating temperature about 2,000 degrees. Molten iron out the bottom, CO2 out the top. Uh, DRI AAF, um, we use um, natural gas as the reductant, the thing that kind of separates the oxygen out from the iron and the iron ore. Um, CO2 out the top but also H2O because natural gas is a combination of carbon and hydrogen um, and they contribute equally in terms of the reduction in the iron ore which is why you see the embodied carbon reduced from 2.5 to 1.25. Very approximate figures but roughly correct. That accounts for 5% of manufacture. Tends to be relatively expensive unless you have a plentiful supply of natural gas so very, very popular in Iran. They've got lots of natural gas. You find that uh, technology quite commonly. And we're starting to see it more in the United States as well, where they've got, uh, because of fracking, they've got more supplies of natural gas. And then the final one, which uh, you'll associate with kind of um, electric arc furnace. You, when you think of electric arc furnace, you'll think of this process, which is basically where we capture end-of-life steel, melt it down in an electric arc furnace, and turn that into product. That accounts for around about 25% of global uh, manufacture and has an embodied carbon factor of 0.5. So those first two on the left are generally referred to as primary steel making because they start with iron ore. The one on the right hand side referred to as secondary steel making because it starts with scrap, so kind of steel with historic emissions. So why don't we just um, do everything from electric arc furnace manufacture? Why can't we do that now? It's not because there is a shortage of scrap. There is plenty of scrap for the way that we make steel today. And scrap will continue to uh, rise in, in, in volumes, the volumes available. 
Um, by 2050, that's predicted to be about 900 million tonnes, rising from about 600 million tonnes today. So, so, so it, the, the, the issue is making an immediate transition. If we switched all the blast furnaces off today, went to electric arc furnace tomorrow, we can't do that. <coughs> so what this slide is trying to indicate is that, yes, scrap horizons will increase. Yes, there will be a gradual transition to electric arc furnace, but we're still going to need primary steel manufacture. We're still going to need quite a substantial amount of that. So the onus on a steel manufacturer is to transition to a zero carbon way or a low carbon way of making primary steel. And that's basically our, our mission at ArcelorMittal. Should say as well, ArcelorMittal, the, 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 the footprint of ArcelorMittal in terms of the steel making capacity, we make about 70 million tons of liquid steel per year. And in terms of the split, we're pretty much globally aligned. So 70% is round, uh, round about is blast furnace manufacture. 20, 20, sorry, 5% is DRI, 25% scrap based. So we've got a, a, a global overview in terms of steel consumption around the world, the products used, and we've also got that broad overview of the steel making processes too. <coughs> so we made, we made some promises um, in uh, 2018, I think it was. <coughs> That's when we started our journey. That's when we seriously started to think about how we decarbonize our business how we decarbonize steel making. Um, and we went through a process of trying to develop the, um, <coughs> the processes that we'd implement to help us to achieve that. So in 2019, we published our first climate action report. A little bit of a stab in the dark, we basically committed to net zero by 2050, not 100% sure about how we were gonna do it. Um, in the second climate action report that focused on Europe and a plan for Europe, um, you started to see a little bit of a change in emphasis about the, uh, the technologies that we'd roll out. And then in 2021, we've basically got a game plan which covers our global operations. So the target is a 25% reduction in our global emissions, um, and initially a 30% reduction in our European emissions, but increasing to 35% because of the confidence uh, that we were getting in terms of the noises from um, governments about helping us to, uh, to decarbonize. Um, that's the roadmap from that second climate action uh, report. Um, the right-hand side, obviously, is still a little bit of uh, guesswork. It's our best guess at the moment. But the left-hand side, so between now and uh, 2030, we've got a very clear vision of what needs to be done and how we're going to do it. So there's a little bit of code in there. So you'll see that there's talk about steelmaking transformation. What does steelmaking transformation mean? That means switching blast furnaces off and transitioning to DRI, electric arc furnace manufacture, because that gives us a route into uh, hydrogen-based steel reduction uh, production. Um, category B is energy transformation. That's talking about working with the blast furnace, because we'll still need blast furnaces um, probably up until 2050 and maybe a bit beyond, but looking at what we can do to make blast furnaces better. Carbon capture technologies, um, circular carbon inputs uh, at the bottom of the blast furnace. Um, increased use of scrap, we know that scrap volumes are going to increase, so it makes sense to capitalise on that. And then um, the, the final bit, um, sourcing clean electricity, obviously, but we also have a role to play in terms of creating more electricity uh, uh, capacity. And then the final one is offsetting. So offsetting we won't even entertain until well beyond 2030 because we've got um, a, a lot to do before then. <coughs> so this is the game plan for, uh, for Europe. Um, this takes, takes us to the 2030 target, that 35% reduction, and um, it essentially involves the building of a number of DRI EAF plants. So sorry, I'll just step down here. So um, the, the first one is probably going to be in um, northern Spain, in Sesto and Asturias. Um, that will probably transition immediately to green hydrogen-based um, steel manufacture. Um, the target is to have that operational by 2025. We then have two plants, uh, one in Dunkirk, one in Foss in France. That's a 2027 deadline. Um, and then we have one in Ghent and Eisenhüttenstadt and Bremen in Germany. That will be 2030. Each of those um, plants will cost about a billion euros. Um, and um, so that, that's, a, that's a five billion pounds worth of development that you're looking at on that, uh, that diagram. 
Um, lots of opportunities for designers to get involved with the design of those plants as well. Um, but that is, uh, is our game plan. <coughs> in Spain, this is roughly how we see it, see it working. This is the infographic. Um, so it all starts with, uh, with renewables. So for the past five years, we've been investing in um, renewables capacity, uh, generally through power purchase agreements. So once you've got those renewables, that you then need a partner who can basically split water into hydrogen and oxygen for you. The hydrogen you use to power the DRI. So that hydrogen goes to the DRI. Um, this is the electric arc furnace, which would be powered by renewables. If you make iron ore from hydrogen, it's got no carbon in it. And steel is an alloy of iron and carbon. So bizarrely, we've got to put some carbon into the iron to make steel. We'll use kind of circular forms of carbon to do that. This is the reheat furnace, and that'll be powered by, uh, by hydrogen or heated by hydrogen. And then the mill trains will be uh, powered by, uh, by renewables. And we hope that when that um, is in operation in Sestau, it'll be the first industrial scale uh, plant, um, which will be zero carbon over scopes one and two. Um, so that's a lot of talk about plans but what are we physically doing? And in the last 12 months, we've made um, quite a bit of progress. Some of it is still front-end stuff. It's about getting the finance in place to allow these things to happen. But top right, what you're seeing is uh, basically a commitment from uh, the government in Spain to uh, put up some money to allow us to proceed with those developments in northern Spain and meet that 2025 target. Below that is bringing in the industrial partners. So we've entered into partnership with this company called High Deal España, they're basically going to kind of uh, bring those renewables in um, and provide us with the green hydrogen. We'll then build the DRI AF facilities and uh, join all those dots together. Um, <coughs> down at the bottom left, we need a different strategy for Germany. If you look at Germany, we want to build the DRI AAF, but when you look at the infrastructure in terms of power, it's quite carbon intensive. So if we race ahead trying to do hydrogen-based manufacture, we're not really kind of having a, a positive impact. So in that case, the first step has to be to provide the power infrastructure, and we're doing that through partnership with RWE. So it's a 50-50 venture where we'll build um, a, a wind farm in the North Sea. That will provide the electricity. That will provide the additionality that people are talking about. So we're creating capacity, um, renewables capacity, and that'll power the electrolyzer, which will allow us to proceed with the DRI AAF. <coughs> Um, down the right-hand side, more, more physical things. Um, top right, um, a, a plant that we bought an 80% stake in. So this is a state-of-the-art DRI plant in Texas. Um, and uh, we've, uh, we've got a, a, a stake in that. That will probably act as a training ground to train personnel up on how these DRI AF plants work. Um, and then um, next one down, we've actually broken ground, put a spade in the ground for a plant in Canada where we're going to build a DRI AAF. How has that been possible? Basically because we got 50% funding from the governments of, uh, I think it's Ontario and um, Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a physical plant being built. That one will initially be natural gas based, but it'll be hydrogen ready. Then when the hydrogen infrastructure drops into place, we can then proceed with the next stage. Um, last year, November, December time, um, we inaugurated a carbon capture and use plant um, at our facilities in Ghent. Um, so this is basically a piece of kit which captures the gases which come off the blast furnaces. First thing you do is separate out the CO2 from the carbon monoxide and the hydrogen. CO2 you capture and store, geological storage is what we're looking at. Um, and then the carbon monoxide, the hydrogen, you can put through this process and out of the end you get bioethanol and that um, can be used for plastics manufacture. Another project which is due to be inaugurated sometime uh, this year is taking end-of-life plastics, treating them through a process called torrefaction, and then injecting them at the bottom of the blast furnace and displacing fossil coal, and that creates a loop between what comes off the top of the blast furnace and kind of what you put in at the bottom of the blast furnace. Um, so those two things what they do with that, that category A, category B in terms of the game plan, so the transition to DRI AAF, looking at uh, the energy that we use in terms of manufacture. This next one is kind of about securing our scrap supply and strengthening our scrap position. 
So over the course of the last 12 months, we've basically uh, procured um, four scrap businesses. John Laurie Metals in, uh, in Scotland, um, a facility in, um, in the Netherlands, um, another one in Germany, and another one in Poland. We've spent um, quite a lot of time in being more transparent with um, how bad we are to the planet, if you want to put it like that, or how we're improving. Um, so um, we publish this publication every year. It's called the uh, Integrated Annual Review, and it's supported by a fact book um, as well. Um, and in that, we basically publish all of the business data for the stakeholders, but we also report on carbon as well. So carbon is now part of the, um, <coughs> the information that the executive has to report on to stakeholders. And we're measured against that. And the board um, remuneration package is also based on the performance in terms of hitting those targets. So if you look at this as a snapshot of one or two things in the document, but um, you see the, uh, the carbon targets, 25% globally, 35% um, in Europe by 2030. Um, down the left-hand side, you've got the improvement for the, um, the, the uh, emissions um, in Europe. Um, so we've, um, we're currently at 1.67, but with a target of 1.11, I think it is, by 2030. Um, at the bottom, that's the, um, the state of play uh, for, for, for us globally. Um, so a higher factor because we tend to uh, use more blast furnace manufacture outside of Europe. Um, but uh, currently at 2 with an aspiration to be at 1.52 by 2030. Um, <clears throat> so, if you like all that, what, uh, what should you do? So the first thing is that if you want to support um, not just ArcelorMittal, but any steel maker who is seriously making the transition to a, a lower form of steel making, then they'll probably be signed up to something called Responsible Steel. So Responsible Steel is an environmental social governance standard, but from the point of view of the climate, there's a clause in there, clause 10. Uh, <coughs> and basically what that kind of holds the company to is looking at each of their steel production sites and developing a plan, a decarbonisation plan for that site. And it'll probably be different for every site. Once you've got the plan, you've then got to roll out that plan. And because this is audited every two years, it means that you're getting measured and audited against that plan. So it's not just about the plan itself, it's about rolling out that plan too. Um, we've spent the last two years, we're, we're not quite there yet. It's still a kind of a, a, um, a in, in, in the process of being rolled out. But down the uh, left-hand side of the screen there, you can see all of the sites which have been audited. Um, to Responsible Steel. We've got a couple of site audits which have been completed, but we haven't yet received a certificate. And again, there's still um, one or two uh, that we need to complete on that. But we're, we're quite far away along the, uh, the path there, along the journey. Um, at the beginning of the presentation, you saw the XCARB Recycled and Renewable Product Offer and those EPDs. There is another offer, which is XCARB Green Steel Certificates. And it's a little bit tricky to explain. But primary steel making is the tough one. That's, that's, that's where the, the work needs to be done. Um, but there are things that we can do now, and we've done small things. So what you're seeing there, kind of top, uh, top right, bottom right, is um, connecting the, the coke ovens. So if you're a primary steel manufacturer, you usually need a source of carbon. That source of carbon is usually coal. What you do is you put coal in a coke oven, you burn it uh, without oxygen, and you end up with a very intense form of carbon in the form of metallurgical coke. Um, you put that in the blast furnace, and that helps the, with the reduction of the iron ore. But it emits gases when you, um, th those coke ovens emit gases. So if you connect those gases into your blast furnace, you can, you can sorry, uh, displace fossil coal injection at the bottom of the blast furnace. So that's what we did at Heon. This was in 2018. Um, and, and we made a saving. And it looks quite big. It's, um, it's 125,000 tonnes of CO2 that's being saved every year because of that action. But if we then go and write an EPD, which will cost us about £20,000, the value on the EPD would have gone from, this is for the, for the plate that we produced, from 2.6 down to 2.52. We want to offer you things that you see a value in. We want to offer you things that you're prepared to pay more for. 
and we don't think you'd pay more for that. So what do we do? Because we've rolled that out at one of our blast, we generally have two blast furnaces per site. We've rolled that out at, um, at one of the blast furnaces on every of our sites in Europe and also some parts of the globe as well. Um, so the proposition is that we use this thing called green steel certificates. And that's basically where we gather all of those savings only from the blast furnace sites, only from the primary steel making sites. And we divide those CO2 emission savings and they're audited by a company called DMV to ensure that we play fairly. They divide them by a value of 2.112. The significance of the 2.112 value is that that is the average emissions from a blast furnace in Europe. And you convert those emissions into a quantity in effect of zero carbon steel, these green steel certificates. Um, so back in 2020, we put 30,000 tons of steel, uh, green steel certificates on the market, increased to 120 in 2021, currently at about 600,000 tons. That's in part due to the, um, the, uh, the plant at Ghent coming on stream. Um, and that gives you a mechanism to reduce your scope three emissions. And that can feed through into your project emissions too, as long as you're prepared to have a little bit of a flexible approach. It doesn't quite fit with the, the, the project carving um, accounting protocol that's used in 15978, but, um, but, but it does give you a, a way of trying to allow for that in your project. So these are our blast furnace products. That's a standard EPD, no fancy reductions. It just measures what happens with that product um, in the process following 15978. This is how you take account of the green steel certificates. You'd take the A1 to A3 value from those EPD that I've just shown you, and then if you bought 100 tons of steel and you bought 100 tons of green steel certificates, you could deduct 2.112 from that APD value. If you only bought 50 tons of green steel certificates but bought 100 tons of product, you'd um, deduct 1.00 whatever it is uh, from that figure. So you can buy fewer green steel certificates relative to the volume of material that you buy, but you can't buy more because that would be cheating. Um, but that's kind of a way that it could, uh, it could work. So, sorry about this, but this is numbers. Um, I'll do them relatively quickly so that it's painless for you. But really what I want to try and demonstrate is that actually you can pump things into a magic box, but not really understand what comes out of it. You can do this, which is crude, but it gives you a direction of travel. It lets you identify where you should spend your effort in terms of carbon reduction. So many of you will be involved in, um, in sheds. <clears throat> so if you look at the wrap around the building, it has a weight in steel terms of um, about 13 kilograms per meter squared, as I think what it says on the screen. So you take that 13 and you multiply it by the embodied carbon factor. The weight is easy. You guys all know that. The embodied carbon factor, choosing which one's appropriate, that's the bit that requires judgment and knowledge of the market, all that sort of stuff. That's where we could probably help you. But you take that weight, you multiply it by the embodied carbon factor, and then, because you've done it in weight per meter squared, you get kilograms um, of CO2 per meter squared. Nice and easy to understand. So we've got 35.4 there for the cladding. You do the same process for the purlins. They weigh about five kilograms per meter squared. That becomes 12.9. Do the same for the frame. I've even included a slab here. Um, and then you've got a total. Oops. So that total there, 228. And then I've calculated the percentage down the right-hand side. So we can see that where we need to focus our effort is in the frame and in the slab. There are, there are two targets. I'm not gonna deal with the slab, but what I'm gonna try and show you is how those X-carb green steel certificates would work. So we've got the 13, we've got our previous EPD value that you show on the screen, 2.72. You deduct from that, that 2.112 because I've assumed 100% purchase of green steel certificates. And then you basically get a carbon reduction going down from, what's it, 35.4 down to eight. Do the same for purlins. Uh, the frame I've used the X-carb recycled and renewably produced EPD. Why? Because that's the way we make sections that the via electric arc furnace. Um, left the slab alone because that's none of my business. 
and you see that there's a reduction there of um, whatever it is, um, 133 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. So once you're into the numbers, you can do that in about five minutes, and you probably only need to do a handful of times, and then you've probably got an intuitive feel for what you need to do on the projects that you're involved in. So that's sheds. Letty has been talked about, might be replaced by the new part Z, um, but essentially you're starting with a target. That target allows you to inform what you need to do with other parts of the structure. So here we know that the, the structure accounts for about 50% of the CO2 in a building. So we take that 350 target and basically we, we calculate a target for the structure. If you took a typical composite slab, it would be about 70 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. I've abbreviated that to 68. So we've now got a target for the steel frame of 100. <coughs> we now find out from the QS, cost consultant, maybe the structural engineer, what the weight per meter squared is of our building. We take that weight per meter squared, multiply it by the embodied carbon factor, and you've got the carbon intensity of your steel frame expressed per meter squared. So that was using a blast furnace product. Um, on the right, you've got the X-carb. So you could take that whole, that whole saving if you want, the 291 kilograms per meter squared, or because we're in a transitionary phase, you start to uh, mix things up a little bit and you use the X-carb as a mechanism to, um, to allow you to hit the targets. So all I've done there is just pro-rata to get a target percentage of X-carb and then the rest can be sourced from wherever. Uh, sorry, I'll step back one. This is a quick win, in my opinion. This, is, this should be standard, but if you're in multi-story construction, if you've got four meter high columns, if you go through the blue book, which is basically a series of um, um, load capacity tables for 355 steel, if you look at um, high star 460, a higher grade steel, on every column size, I guarantee you, you will see a 30% reduction in weight. So that's a 30% reduction in carbon that you can have like that. And then because of the way that we manufacture the steel, you can then take that further. So you've gone from 833 kilograms of CO2 per meter run, Delta 576 through being smart about the materials that you use, smart about your design, and then the final bit is about the provenance of the material, where it comes from. The key thing about this one is that High Star is a premium product. You pay more per tonne for it. Um, X-Carb is a premium product. You pay more per tonne for it. But if you do that, you will save money, um, particularly at the higher end. Um, can be as much as 25%, but even at the lower end, where you, you know, you've maybe just got a 305 UC97, you, it'll be cost neutral. You might even make a little bit of a saving. <coughs> and then the final one, I think, is uh, basically composite slabs. You've got the idea of how the calculations work. That would be a typical composite slab around about 70 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. Introduce um, the X-carb offering, and that 70 goes down to um, 45. And then some people will hate me in the audience for this, but if you look at GGBS, you can take that a little bit down further. That's your decision to make, not ours. I'm just showing you kind of what could be possible. That's all I want to say. Um, what I want to do now is um, invite Marion to the stage. And Marion's going to talk to you very briefly and try and some join some parts of the loop. So around the, um, the, the arena yesterday, we heard lots of talk about steel reuse. Um, and what Marion wants to talk about is how steel reuse can be facilitated um, at the start of projects that maybe you're considering today. Is that okay, Marion? Bruce, thanks, Walter. Um, can you hear me well? Yeah, perfect. Uh, all right. Uh, I'm going to briefly introduce you to a, a project, a European research project, which was called REDUCE. Um, it's a project which started in 2016 and which ended in 2019. So it's already a little bit old, let's say, but we're trying to capitalize on it uh, now. You can see the partners which were involved in that project. And uh, oh, okay, you can guess it through the name, REDUCE. We're trying to reduce the material and to um, reuse steel within structures, but 
the foundation of that project, there was this thinking about, okay, what are the requirements for reusability? We know that steel is a material that can be easily uh, reused, but we still need to think what can be done at the design stage to make sure to try to improve and favor the reuse um, of the steel structure elements at the end of life. So here on the slide, you can see some uh, requirements which were highlighted through the project. Um, we have modular design, standardization, prefab, demountability, and robustness. So when it comes to modular design, the thinking uh, at the base of, the, of this project was to rely on a grid which would be a, always you need to think of a multiple of a basic module. That's a bit, uh, you, you will understand it better afterwards, but we need to keep this in mind. Then all the other requirements are, let's say, assessed, analyzed for steel frame, but also for a composite slab. So when it comes to a demountable steel frame, like I told you, we are trying to work with grids which are um, a multiple of a basic module. So let's assume that, okay, we have this grid of uh, six times the basic module, whatever is the, the value of the basic module. Um, and we have that beam, and then we want to, it's a, a given beam, and it's valid for a given uh, column. But then the building uh, reaches it, its end of life, and we want to reuse that beam. But in the next life of the beam, the columns may be different. The columns may be uh, deeper, so you cannot just reuse the beam as it is. So the um, solution that was brought through the research project was to develop adjustable connections. So in a sense, you will always have the beams. So here, let's assume that the size of the beam is six times the basic module. Then you remove two times 200 millimeters, shorten a little bit the beam, and then you use these adjustable connections. And this will allow you to always rely on this multiple of the basic module, but still be able to reuse the beam. So here you can see there is an example with a gap uh, on the left side with a, a gap of 93 millimeters and it still works for the second example where the columns are a bit bigger. You can still use the exact same beam and you don't have to um, cut it or, or whatever. Um, yeah, about these connections, I mean, it's, it's all the, the really, the, the basic principle of all of that um, is the same as the Lego, um, the Lego games. We will be always using a multiple of the basic modules and you can always reuse them and work with a stock and you can even, for example, rely on tools like the stock uh, matching tool that was presented yesterday. And this connection, of course, they were also um, modeled through FEM. They were tested in the university, so everything has, built, uh, has been, let's say, thoroughly analyze, it's not only a theoretical principle, it's, uh, it, it has been researched during a couple of years. So now everything is uh, public, all the information is on the table. So if you want to learn more about this, of course, all the partners of the project will be happy to, to guide you through more details. So this was about the frame, the steel frame. But uh, an important addition of the project is also the demountability of the composite slab because we all know that steel is a material that can be easily um, dismantled. But if we really want to leverage on the strength of the materials, we also need to think of uh, composite uh, structures. Um, and that's the tricky part when it comes to composite structures, that usually, well, composite and demountability is not always uh, possible. But here, through the project, the, there is this uh, system which was developed where you can, it can work with a um, prefab uh, flat concrete slab, but it also, work, it also works with a composite steel deck, um, steel and concrete uh, slab. And there are two ways, two systems which were developed, um, which rely on uh, bolts, but you can either bolt from the uh, bottom or from the top. So you will have some, let's say, steel sh uh, chambers, steel tubes. Uh, Walter, you taught me the English word for that, but a I forgot. A ferrule. A ferrule. <laughs> Sorry. So you have this little tube which is already embedded into the, the concrete, and then you just need to bolt from the bottom or from the top. Um, it was also modeled numerically and uh, tested in the lab. 
and it was shown that you can reach the same uh, resistance than normal shear studs. And to compute these, you can also rely on the existing methodology in Eurocode 4, but you need to pay, there is a little um, different um, calc that you need to make when it comes to the slip and to the, the minimum degree of shear connection, but otherwise the, the basic equations from Eurocode 4 um, can be followed. So once more, if you, if you want to know a little bit more about that, everything is public, nothing is a secret, so we'll be happy to, to give you more insights uh, into this. And um, this is, I think, the final slide. So all of this research um, has been done. Um, numerical models were developed, equations were developed. I mean, everything is ready. But what, what I personally think was very interesting is that at the end of the project, they decided to go for a pilot project. Uh, and this pilot project is called La Petite Maison, uh, which means uh, the little house, um, because basically they built a little house following that principle. So they've designed the steel frame, uh, the composite slabs, everything was built, it's a small scale of course, but everything was built just next to the, the University of Luxembourg. Um, and I think it is going to be dismantled, dismantled by the end of this month. So if you're quick to come to Luxembourg, maybe you can still visit it, but otherwise, uh, I mean, it will be dismantled soon. And really the principle is, so of course it is, it is a pilot project. So it was the aim to show that it's possible to build at a small scale, of course, what was researched. But now all the materials will be stocked and hopefully reused by someone who's willing to reuse uh, these uh, structural elements. Everything's on the table, everything's ready. I mean, um, at the, to my opinion, this is the best that we can do at the research stage. Um, everything is public, everything can be shared. I think every partner of the project will be more than happy to discuss with you to try to scale that up and to use these principle uh, in the frame of a real project. I think everybody's waiting for that. So now the question is, are we willing to uh, capitalize on this and are we willing to do the extra mile to make sure that we can use this principle in a real project? And so that's a bit the message that we're trying to pass that, okay, we have all of these developments which are ongoing in the frame of the steel making, but we're also working on developing um, efficient structural systems, new ways of building, and we're here to make sure, I mean, trying our best to make sure that it happens, and we're here to answer the questions if you have some and to support you through these uh, initiatives if you want to take them. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Marion. Thanks. Um, so, so that's kind of our, our offering um, this morning. Um, Dave, myself, and Marion we're, we're, were around. Well, I'm around for most of the day. I think Dave and Marion might be around maybe till around lunchtime. And we're happy to take any questions that you might have now, of course. Oh, yeah, I have to tell you, because this is a lot of information, um, everything was recorded and will be uh, available on the Footprint Plus website. So if you want to come back, of course, we're here as well to answer the yeah. questions. Uh, but still, if you want to come back on the presentation, it will be available on the Footprint Plus Lovely. website. Thank you, Marion. I think that gentleman there sh should be. Hello, and thank you. Sorry, I only caught the end of it, so I might have missed a little bit. My name is Ed Kremen. I'm a director at Etude. And yeah, so I think it's fantastic, you know, conceptually and delivery. So kind of two questions, really. It's great that it's going to be dismantled, but will it be reassembled to test its full sort of process? Um, and are you looking at, or have you developed systems that are, um, can be linked with timber frames, sort of hybrid structures? So just yeah, those two things. And sorry if you've covered them already. <laughs> no, no, thanks, uh, thanks for uh, raising these questions. So uh, will it be, uh, rebuilt, that's really the, the wish that we have. Uh, University of Luxembourg will uh, stock the material and they are willing, of course, to put it back into a real building. Um, I think they're just waiting for someone to volunteer, but also knowing that this is quite small. So, of course, I mean, for a real building, we're expecting that uh, new material will have to be uh, added as well, uh, but at least could work uh, with that, knowing that it relies on this 
um, multiple of basic module systems, so could work. I mean, it should work. Um, and about Timber, so like uh, I said at the beginning of the, these slides about uh, the reduced project, that the research project started in 2016, ended in 2019, so the, the research is finished, everything is public. But now at the moment, the University of Luxembourg is working on developing a similar system with Timber. So demountable composite steel plus timber uh, system, but the research is ongoing. So there are things which are available because some publications are being made, but I know that tests are ongoing. Yeah, research is ongoing, so some, some stuff are still, um, it's not top secret, but I mean, it's not everything is ready to be disseminated yet, but it will, it will come shortly. So if you are interested, of course, we can, uh, um, keep you informed and also put you in contact with the people from the University of Luxembourg who uh, I bet will be happy to take you through this. Thank you. I really like the presentation on the reuse. That's great. Um, on the DRI, you said, there's a few, I have a few questions. Um, you have to add carbon. You said you use circular carbon. Yeah. First one is what is circular carbon? Second is to get DRI at scale to be financially viable, you say you have to do fracking. That doesn't sound good to me. So. No, I, I didn't say that. Well, no? sorry. Um, if, if we take the first one. Right. If, if you use DRI using hydrogen, that's when you need carbon. So the circular form of carbon, it could be, it could be wood waste. It could be those waste plastics from, you know, uh, the, 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 the plant, but, but, but basically you need a source of carbon. And all we're saying is we're going to be careful about that choice of carbon. We're going to try not to use fossil carbon, which would be the easy choice. Um, so, so it's really just that thought process initially. But I think the initial thought was probably a wood-based, a bio-waste type product. Um, in terms of the fracking, <coughs> We, we, we don't need gas from fracking. We, it, it, well, sorry, no. What's the best way to put this? Um, what we've got to ask ourselves is we've got a blast furnace which emits two and a half tons of CO2 per ton and use fossil coal. And we've got that choice. Or we have a choice of a DRI AAF, which is hydrogen ready, but we can't use hydrogen yet. So is it better to use natural gas, which may come from fracking, with half the footprint or do we wait for another five years for the hydrogen to come on stream? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, Sounds so like a very <laughs> nuanced <laughs> so topic so anyway. So, you know, uh, sorry, I, I mean, th th these are difficult decisions, aren't they? Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there is no perfect solution. The only thing we've got to do is take a step mm -hmm. and then take another step. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're taking that step. We know it's not perfect. But we've got the eye on the future. We're making the kit hydrogen ready. The hydrogen's not there yet in, in that part of the world. It, it will be, it'll come, but we can do something now. Yeah. So that's why we're doing it, yeah. Okay, one final one, sorry. Um, your, re uh, your scrap figures, have you considered reuse in any of them and how it might take off? Because we're certainly seeing a bit of a trend in reusing steel, certainly in London at the moment. Do you think that's gonna impact your scrap? The scrap, the scrap, the scrap, the scrap, the scrap. Um, yeah, so it'll reduce no, your scrap no, if we're because well, we're not going to add well back it into your it's stock. It, it, it's kind of an interesting proposition. Will, will, will it affect it? Yes, of course it will. Is it going to have a significant impact? Um, I don't. I it's don't, hard to know. No, no, it, it is. It is. I mean, the obvious answer is yes. Uh, Marion, do you have a view? Yeah, yeah. Just also to, to <coughs> highlight the fact that here, of course, it will have an impact on the scrap uh, coming from the construction uh, domain, but we also have plenty of scrap coming from appliances, uh, automotive, uh, machinery, all of these things. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, I think I mean no, when, when, no. I, when I see the picture of our scrap yard, I see mostly uh, scrap coming from... Uh, if, if you uh, talk about churn rates washing machine 10 years, car 20 years, building structure 60 years. Um, if you think about our Victorian heritage, um, Brighton Railway Station, don't know when it was built, 1880 I guess, 120 years. So, so, so maybe um, to some extent that, that construction sector scrap 
maybe isn't as significant as, mm -hmm. as, as we think it is. It's probably there, and, and yes, it would be, be foolish to say no, it'll not have an impact, but I don't think the impact will be significant mm -hmm. until you guys seriously get that um, recirculation stuff sorted out. I don't know if you have other questions. Thank you. Can I just ask, um, it was a really good presentation, by the way, both of them. Um, roughly, what's the cost premium for DRI methane-based steel? That's um, an excellent question, um, to which I don't know the answer, other than it's more. <laughs> um, okay. so, so, so if you forget about the cost of the gas, um, if you think about the blast furnace, you create liquid steel. Um, so, so you're pretty much there straight away. Sorry, there was a, an important piece of detail which maybe I missed out. In the DRI process, you end up with a solid iron product at the end because the operating temperature is about 1,000 degrees, which is below the, the melting temperature of the iron. That's why you need the electric arc furnace to melt that down. So the energy footprint, at a rough guess, is probably 50% greater. So if you took the energy price as the measure, you're probably looking at something which is maybe 50% more. But that's very, very rough um, figures. <coughs> Good stuff, thank you. Um, just on the <coughs> somehow connected to the what happens when steel is reused question, what happens when other industries also need hydrogen? Is there, in terms of analysis of availability of hydrogen kind of globally, right? Because everyone wants it, everyone wants to decarbonize. Um, these industries aren't speaking to each other. My understanding is that the automotive sector has bought most of the hydrogen available in the next 10 years. How does that, how does that work for, for your decarbonization plan? I'm wondering if you've looked at that. Um, I'm sure we have a corporate level. And um, I'm, I'm sure that um, there's, the, there's the IEA, is it the International Energy Association? Haven't read all of their stuff but I know they tend to do the big picture stuff and I would imagine that that's been thought about, but personally, I don't have that knowledge. I don't know if, uh, if you've got any, sorry, sorry Maria. Yeah. Thank you. Um, no, I, I, I mean, I just maybe one, one comment is also the, this thing related to the innovation fund. Because when, when Walter presented the innovation fund saying that, okay, the company is, is injecting huge budget into uh, developments and other companies actually, so the, the, um, the funding is not uh, self-funding, we're funding other companies. When you, if you go on our website, you will see that most of these companies are um, energy related because it's somehow a, a confession to say, okay, we know we're responsible of many things there are things on which we can play. It's in our hands. We have the power to change that. But there are other things we really need to rely on that. Uh, everything which is related to the energy, we need to make sure that we'll be able to access the energy which is required to decarb. But this is not, uh, us as a steel manufacturer, we cannot, I mean, it's not our, let's say, our expertise to do this. And this is why I think the, the company is making this acknowledgement to say we're not we're ourselves we're not capable of that so that's why we are funding other companies which we think will be able to help us in this journey we we need to collaborate we need to fund other companies we need to encourage uh, these developments will it be enough um, I don't yeah. have the answer to that question but at least we're trying or best, if uh, that's how we can phrase it, to, to make sure that it will happen. So I think the point you're making there, Marion, is that we're not, being <coughs> we're not being passive partners here and just going to the industry and say, right, you give us a load of hydrogen, you give us a load of renewables. Yeah, We've taken that criticism about addi additionality about us, the consumers, actually creating the capacity. And you might not have missed it, but I think in one of the opening slides, we talked about um, a partnership with RWE but for Germany, so, so that's kind of about creating the, the demand signal, but also some of the capital in the infrastructure and being a, a part of that solution, as opposed to just passively saying, right, come on, you sort it out. Hope it answers the question. It's not a clear answer, but... Yeah. Uh, We're trying hard. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, so I did. I recently did a donut economics workshop in our company, and we compared EPDs of different materials, and we looked at um, a blast oxygen furnace kind of e typical EPD versus um, X carb, and everyone was blown away at the water use um, of steel making generally in comparison to um, cement and um, CLT, for example. And I had a few questions about um, why is there so much water. Um, I think I know the answer, but I wanted to get yours. And does any of that water get reused? I think on, on most steelworks, um, yes, a lot of water gets used for usually um, contact cooling, I think it is. It's, it's for the rolling mills. Yeah, that's what I thought. But usually it's done in a, in a loop. It's in a circulation system. And of course you'll get losses, um, but it'll be topped up. Generally speaking, I think it'll be it'll depend on site to site, but probably you'll try and use water which is from so non-potable water. So so you'll maybe look at an estuary. It'll be untreated water. You put it through the system. Um, so so yes, that the, there is water use there. Yes, um, it's part I think of our sustainability targets to to look and monitor water use. But generally, from a, 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 an economical point of view. It, it, it probably uh, doesn't make sense because you're kind of uh, kind of wasted anyway. But I, I don't know if you have any other knowledge. My, my, my understanding is that it's done in a circular loop. Yeah. Uh, just for the, the in in, uh, in Luxembourg or Belleville Mill, we have a closed loop uh, system for the water, and of course because okay temperatures are very high, there there is some losses uh, for sure. But uh, it's a closed loop system. And I would expect uh, similar systems are installed in other mills, but I, I, would, I would need to yes. double check. But in Luxembourg it is. Hope I'm not hugging the mic, anyone. Um, I was curious, you mentioned about your um, kind of scrap inputs being from all sorts of different industries, um, and presumably therefore all sorts of different qualities. I'm conscious that um, the impurities in scrap limit the amount of scrap that can go into structural steel. Um, is there is Arsler doing? And am I, again, I might have missed this. Apologies. Is Arsler doing any work around um, the supply chain, trying to get higher quality steel back um, to enable that circularity to be uh, th th those materials to be kept at high volume rather than them going into global scrap kind of commodities market and Arsler buying it. From there. Do you want to take that one, Marion? Yeah. We'll grab the mic anyway. Um, what was the question? <laughs> About scrap and uh, the, the quality of scrap, the grades. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so we're an electric arc furnace manufacturer, but we're also a DRI manufacturer, and we're also a blast furnace manufacturer. And each of those processes demands uh, kind of different types of scrap. Um, construction products, rebar, section, sheet piles, they're a bit low tech really. Um, so um, the, the metallurgy isn't particularly demanding. The metallurgy is quite tolerant of um, little gremlins, if I, if I can call it like that. The one which often gets talked about is copper. Um, and copper. There's, I, I wouldn't say there's an issue with copper, but you've got to be mindful of copper. So, perversely, we sometimes put copper into steel to create a product which has superb durability, and it's called weathering steel. The copper helps the, um, the, 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 the rust adhere to the steel and provides that barrier. So copper can be um, a blessing and a curse. Um, but it also affects things like surface finish and stuff like that. Well, with a bit of rebar that's buried in concrete, actually, if you've got a bit of rough steel, that's probably a good thing. Helps with the anchorage, that sort of stuff. So you can tolerate quite high levels of copper. With section, next product, not quite as high as rebar. You know, you maybe need a, a slightly lower because you might be concerned a little about surface finish and that sort of stuff. But generally, quite high levels of, of, of copper can be tolerated. It's not until you get really to the automotive steels, possibly some of the construction steels where you want something that's really, really thin. It needs to have superb surface finish. 
it needs to have yield strengths of um, 1,000, 1,200 newtons per millimetre squared, superb ductility that the metallurgy becomes quite challenging. And it's, it's, it's those areas that you need to be concerned about. So, so yes, do you have to be mindful of the scrap? Of course you do. And in terms of the sections that we make, we, we make up scrap bales and the scrap will be taken from different sources. And we'll be mindful of what the, um, the chemistry, what the metallurgy of those steels are. And we'll put the right mix together to create the particular cake that we're making at that time. So, um, so, so, so yes, um, we're, we're, we're mindful of it. Um, how do we control it? We, we probably do it via a, um, a demand signal to our scrap suppliers. We'll ask for certain types of scrap. There is a European scrap standard, I think, which puts the scraps into different uh, categories depending on what they are. One of the worst ones is probably rebar. Rebar is not great scrap. You've got to be careful with the quantities that you put that in if you, if you make up the scrap bale to make products. And but you need to make sure that you have a bit of everything also to make yeah. sure that the EAF is working properly also in terms of size. So actually, we d uh, there is not so much focus on, okay, we will use that scrap which is supposed to be that having that this or that mechanical properties with this or that yield strength. It's when we talk about scrap, quality, I think the focus is really on avoiding the materials and the parts that we do not want to put into the electric arc furnace. Uh, we do not want any uh, concrete which could damage the furnace or uh, hollow materials. We need to shrink them in some pieces to avoid any explosion or things like this. But otherwise, I don't think there is really an issue when it comes to the grades that we want to manufacture because with the mix that we usually have, we're able to produce up, up to S500 without any issue. Also because um, some of the mechanical properties that we reach uh, are reached through thermomechanical processes like uh, uh, quenching and self-tempering. I mean, it's not, it's not purely related to the input of scrap that we put into the furnace. So, I mean, for me, this is not a, an issue when it comes to the coming years that maybe we will have uh, better scrap from this or that industry because in, in any case we've been doing this for the last uh, 30 years and it works so um, yeah it's more it's more a matter of uh, sorting the scrap in terms of uh, where does it come from really make sure that we avoid the little parts that we do not want to put into the furnace but afterwards, the, the grades which are needed for construction as 355, 460, 500, there's no, there's no issue for that. M most, most elements you can kind of engineer out of the steel. The, the, the two that you've got to be careful of are generally copper and tin. Uh, so they're the ones that you actually want to stop getting in the supply chain in the first instance. So are things happening? I, think that, I, I don't know for sure, but I think the answer probably is yes. So in the past, you know, if you squash down a car, you'd leave the wiring looms in, the copper would get locked in the steel. Do we need to improve that? Yes, we probably do. Those wiring looms probably need to be stripped out. And is it better to have the copper as, a, as an element in itself or, or bound in the steel? So I think the industry is starting to kind of um, deal with that aspect of things uh, better. So if there was a, sorry, Bill, I don't know if you have a, a comment on that because you could probably speak with some experience, I think. Should we give Bill the... Uh, Sorry, Bill's from EMR, which is European Metals Recycling. He knows a thing or two about scrap steel. Yeah, th thanks, Walter. Really good presentation. Um, yeah, just on the point about quality, we're, we're looking to bring our secondary metals down to about 0.15 of copper, as opposed to 0.6 as a, as a standard grade, which means we can work with ArcelorMittal and get it into an automotive um, grade steel. So. Lots of work being done on the separation on our side, particularly around the, the, the shredding. So we've managed to do that now. So we're putting in downstream systems to get it to a point where it can produce the quality. The, the question mark now is around that utility and use and the additional cost of, of, of doing that um, in terms of, you know, it's a slightly different take in the market. So the lower qualities will con continue to go into rebar and and blast furnace, but it is now being possible to produce a very high quality secondary metal. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that.
I was, I was a bit like turning up. Have you already done electroly electrolytic separation of, of oxygen from um, iron oxide? Have you, ever, have you uh, talked about that yet? Um, there's, there's, there's kind of two processes that um, we're kind of involved in. What, one is a recent one through the, um, the investment fund. Um, we've invested in a company called Boston Metals. Yeah, Boston Metals. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I think we've put 30 million pound into them. But Marion, I might need to take this uh, microphone off you. There is another process, and I think it might be called Sidawin. Does that ring any bells with you? It, it's, a, it's a variant of electrolysis, but it's one that we've been working on for a number of years, and it's kind of a, an extra to the Boston Metals one. Similar, well, I was gonna say it's, it's, a, it's a different process, but similar kind of technology, if you like. Yeah, hi. Uh, you said uh, you are aiming at the 25% uh, reduction in your global emissions. Um, yeah. Could you lighten up a bit how, how much would that be in CO2 tons and do you think it's enough and what uh, after 2030? So 25%. Is 25% enough? Um, well, it's 35% in Europe, so, so that's more. Um, I think one of the issues that we have as a steelmaker is it depends where you are ge geographically. So if you think about Europe, if you think about the USA, we've been making steel for a lot of years. We've started to generate scrap. Without anybody thinking about climate, we've started to transition to electric arc furnace using scrap because that is just the best thing to do commercially. Um, but in other parts of the world, they're still going through that growth phase. But if you look at, say, China, China spent the last 20 years growing, primarily it, it started off with blast furnace, but without any encouragement from anybody it started to transition to electric arc furnace, relatively small as a total percentage now, 100 million tons. So ultimately, if you, if you left the steel industry alone, might take 150 years or something, we would naturally go to electric arc furnace manufacture and we'd utilize the scrap. The problem is, is that we just want to get there quicker. Um, and it's, it's that which is kind of creating the incentive, which is why we need to change focus. We can't just let that natural process happen. We've got to uh, look at how we make primary steel. So is 25% is high, high enough target? No. But it's probably the best that we can do at the moment. In fact, we think that that's quite an ambitious target. It is science-based, so it is aligned, I believe, with the, uh, with the Paris Accord. Um, but obviously... Um, the, the reason why it's 25% globally is because we also operate in India, which is a, in a different stage in its development. The hope is that we can take some of the technologies that we develop in Europe and we'll implement those in, uh, in India, but we also work in Brazil, we also work in Africa, and they're at different stages, and it's more about having the, um, the infrastructure in place that facilitates the transition. The, the route really to um, zero carbon or low carbon primary steel making is hydrogen. So if you haven't got the hydrogen networks or you don't have the capital to invest in those, that kind of hinders your progress to some extent. I don't know if that answered your question. Um, I don't know if that, shall I, I'll, I'll, I'll draw a line under it now. Um, Dave, Mary and myself are, um, are gonna hang around a bit. Um, we'd like to thank you for your attention, thank you for your questions and uh, hope you have um, a wonderful rest of your day and rest of the time um, at the, uh, the conference. So thank you very much, appreciate it. Thank you very much.